0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions.
1: 18 plus. This is an unspoiled network podcast. This is spoil me covering Mage Errant book one into the labyrinth. Chapters 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13, Spell Form, The Lair Revealed, Birthday, The True Library, and Punishment and Preparation. In these chapters, we get a little bit more of the emotional situation going on with poor Hugh, and then we get a trip into a much more interesting restricted section of a library. You know who I mean when I say more interesting. Welcome to Spoil Me. Welcome to the show, everyone. I am Natasha. Thank you very much to Dan for commissioning this episode. Dan is here in the chat. What's up, Dan? So, um, yeah, I have been kind of struck, especially in this section, with the number of things that it feels like are... The author being like, no, no, no. Yeah. Compare this to Harry Potter. There are times where I feel like an author is doing a thing and they are like definitely inspired by something, but they're trying to make it distinctly their own. And in a way that feels like they're, you're not really supposed to acknowledge it or, you know what I mean? Like if you do, it's an, you're giving the impression that their work has less worth somehow. And I just really felt like the author at this time was like, no, please feel free to make those comparisons. I'm kind of inviting that on purpose because I want you to see how much better it could have been and that I am doing something a lot more interesting. And there is something about that, that I find really fun. The concept of like, I'm going to take something that's like a beloved work that has been, you know, uh, just s- successful at a level that is beyond anyone's wildest dreams. And I am going to do it better. I am going to make this like just actually magical in a way that I wasn't satisfied by the original. I really respect that. I love it, you know? And again, not to say that that's like a one-to-one ratio, but there are just a lot of things here that I couldn't help but notice. And there's also something that I wanted to mention, which is that, um, I didn't address this initially. I kept intending to and getting sort of sidelined. And now that we have the addition of Godric to the crew, we've got two boys and two girls. But initially the fact that the people that were selected were two girls and one boy is just so y'all y'all. It's just such a thing when you grow up a girl And you are dropped into the world of, like, young adult fantasy. And there's a group of kids doing anything, almost without fail. It's a group of lots of boys and one girl. And by lots of boys, I mean four or five, but we could go up to, like, seven and eight And uh, the one girl is always, like, a girl-next-door type that several boys probably have a crush on, and does she get with somebody? Maybe, but it's always, like, her main reason for being there is as a love interest kind of thing. And even Harry Potter, we had, like, Harry and Ron and Hermione, and she had, like, real personality and everything, but uh, we couldn't couldn't entirely leave behind the love interest thing. Had to be done. So, and not to say that that's just a bad thing across the board, you know, like if there were to become a romantic thing between Hugh and I, I, here's the thing. You've, you've got to make that feel like it's coming from an organic place. And when there's only one girl in a crew of boys, it feels like just the lazy thing to do. You know, it just feels like, well, I guess I've got to give her something to do. And she can't be like the same as the boys and be good at stuff. Um, so anyway, let, I wanted to mention, first of all, uh, Dan, uh, the, the pronunciation, because you were talking about the way that you thought his name was, the way I thought his name was, and then the fact that I was listening to an audio book and I couldn't even remember how he pronounced it. And he pronounces it a lustin, uh, which I'm not really sure how I feel about that. There's something kind of like, a, it just almost feels like, well, he's a lustin for that girl, you know? But then there's part of me that thinks it's kind of fun. So uh, I'm I'm going to go with it for now. And then we'll see if we want to revisit this later at some point. Um. So chapter nine. We have the addition of Godric to the team and how things sort of change now that he's part of things. His dad is part of their training as well. Um, and Hugh is just like, man, this guy is so enormous, both in terms of like his actual size, but also his personality. Uh, I, I'm reading this and realizing I framed phrase that in the exact same way the author did. Um, and, it's just kind of a lot for Hugh because Hugh is easily overwhelmed. I was going to say intimidated, and I don't think that's incorrect, but you know what I mean. There's a difference between being intimidated and being overwhelmed. Um, so then we have their like movement forward with magic. Talia could now consistently manifest dream fire and even hurl fist sized bursts of it at targets with a fair degree of accuracy. Dreamfire, disturbingly, didn't always burn its target. It always damaged it somehow. Sometimes the target would be frozen solid, other times aged until it crumpled to dust, or on one memorable occasion, diced into hundreds of perfect half-inch cubes. I love this. There's something about the idea of like a thing being brought down into tiny... This is uh, in Dresden Files, Ramirez can make things basically like dissolve into particles, like almost like they explode in clouds of dust, but it's like the atoms of the, you know, building blocks of the the person or object. And I have always just been kind of into that. Um, Sabay had shown massive improvement, at least with her wind attunement. She could regularly release gust strikes with her blows. She had begun the rudiments of developing it into wind armor and could manifest bracers. They couldn't deflect a lot and she could only maintain them a few seconds at a time, but they were enough to significantly cushion most blows. However, she is still refusing to use her healing affinity. And this really bums me out. And I'm really just hoping that she gets over it at some point. I feel like there has to be an additional story to why she feels the way she does about the healing thing beyond even what she's told them because there's just so much shame surrounding it. I don't know if it's just that. I mean, the fact that she sort of blames the infusion of her healing affinity for ruining what she can do with her weather-related stuff, I suppose that's plenty, but I don't know. Miss um, <laughs> Shard says, I like the gender balance in our crew for especially because they're all fleshed out people. Yeah. Dan says, hmm, I don't like that pronunciation at all. I feel you on that. Uh, Dan says, best dad. Yeah, he seems cool. I, uh, I'm, you know, I'm here for a strong father-son relationship. Uh, and then we get some details about how Rhodes is not, like, fucking with them, but he has sort of blackballed them with a lot of other people at the school. And, like, so people don't want to sit near them and are just sort of, like, nervous about displaying any, any behaviors that make it seem like they're friends. Um. So then, let's see. He reached a breaking point in Allison's office. Sabé was off doing combat training while Talia had been sent to the library to retrieve a number of books. Why haven't you taught me any spells yet? I thought that's what I've been doing. You haven't yet, though. I don't know any spells outside of my wards. I definitely have been teaching you new spells. You just haven't been listening. What did I tell you? I'd be teaching you at the very beginning how to adjust spells to work for me, how to improve my own spells. Exactly. I don't believe I ever told you I'd be teaching you spells on their own. The whole point of learning spell form construction is so that you can craft your own. Y'all, I was just saying this in the last section. I was like, I guess it's going to be a while before, you know, he can figure out a way to like handle his mana in such a way. But, uh, It turns out I'm trying to adjust the way that he's working to make a spell that exists function instead of using my imagination and making a different spell. And really, isn't that like the whole problem if you're not acknowledging people who have like different abilities and perhaps different advantages and disadvantages to the way that their brain like comprehends certain things? Is you don't try and make them change the way they understand the world. The way you work it is you change the way you're showing them the world to make it easily understandable. So I have just been falling into the same trap and uh, I'm disappointed in myself. I'm just saying. Um, so he has him draw a spell form that's like got more capacity. And at first, it doesn't work. Like, it works a little, but it, it doesn't do exactly what Hugh had intended. And Alastair is like, well, it did levitate. I mean, you did something. And was like, yeah, but it didn't stop when it was supposed to. Alestin grabbed another sheet of paper and swiftly drew out another spell form. It had the same definitive lines and similar aiming lines, but a very different foundation line. This is the standard basic levitation spell form. All it has is the foundation line, the definitive lines, and the aiming lines. What happens when you try to use it? It explodes. And what's the difference between the two spell forms? The foundation line on the standard is built only to handle a little bit of mana considerably less than I put into it. Which is why it reacted so badly. But your new one didn't shatter. So why did it fail? It didn't. Try again. And he does it again and he's annoyed, but Alestin says, "Mm, you lost concentration. You've got to like try and hold it here. And then it goes up and it just stays stuck to the ceiling. Unlike the standard spells, you're not getting random chaotic results because you're not shattering the spell form. The standard levitation spell only lifts small objects a couple of feet because that's all the mana foundation line channels into the effect. Your spell form, however, can channel enough mana to lift this book about 20 or 30 feet, I'd wager. The book, which had remained pinned against the ceiling, abruptly abruptly shot off along the ceiling to one side, slamming against the office door. I really appreciate that even when he's like starting to nail something, we get another issue. We've got a horizontal movement here. If you'd wanted to reduce the height the book rose to, there are a couple of ways to do that. And he gets into this here. I'm not going to get too lost in the sauce on this because I feel like it could be very easy for me to do, but uh, I am just going to take his word for it. And He says, you've already, I'm happy to congratulate you for creating your first original spell. You've already achieved something that many mages never even attempt in their entire careers. Hugh blinked, then smiled. Just then, however, Talia entered the office and promptly tripped over the book Hugh had been levitating, sending her armfuls of books tumbling across the floor. What idiot just left a book right in the entryway? Were you trying to break someone's neck? Talia sounded like she was prepared to rant for quite a long time. His smile turned a little sheepish and he got out of his chair to go help Talia pick up her books. <laughs> Talia is out here just fucking ready for a fight. Any time. Come at her. She does not care. She could be in the best mood. She'll turn that right off. Just for you. Fine with it. Um, and... <laughs> Hugh keeps practicing this and is finding out that like spell crafting is just so much more complicated than he was really expecting it to be. He's making lots of adjustments and they each like kind of have a domino effect on some of the other adjustments that he has made. And he finds out that like there are actually a relatively few number of spells that most people memorize and that's why they carry around books that are filled with spells because they have to look things up, they don't keep them in their head. Um, which is not like great because he's talking about he's specifically thinking about being in like battles and stuff, and uh, has to admit that well, I guess that's not like super common, so I guess that's fine. But the concept of being able to like just make spells on the fly is something that is really appealing and just looking more and more like it's a bit of a pipe dream, just not really something that's like either realistic or necessarily even helpful, you know? Um, So, These experiments with his levitation spell showed Hugh exactly how far he had to go, and he redoubled his efforts at his studies. One major concern, however, was that he was learning spell form crafting at the cantrip stage, rather than as a fully attuned mage. And he asks Alustin about this, and he says, uh, Even the most high-level spells involve quite a bit of unattuned mana, and cantrips aren't actually entirely unattuned. Your basic levitation spell uses mana tinged with gravity and force attunements, and your basic fire started, uh, basic fire starting spell, uses fire tinged mana. So, what's the point of attunements then? Hugh said. The simplest answer is that without attunements, you can only provide slightly attuned mana to a spell. Not the deeply attuned mana that spell forms for deep attunements need. You can use unattuned mana for light uh you can use unattuned mana to light tinder for a campfire, but you can't throw a fireball with it. And this is something very interesting to me because the whole thing that I'm stuck on is wanting him to find an attunement. And I'm wondering if maybe I need to kind of get over that and do this like you know, I got stuck on, what if I just made him, my, my my whole thing with, let's find a way for him to adjust how much mana he puts into things. I know Alustan literally said in the text that he learned how to flood things with mana so young that undoing it isn't probably going to happen. And I was still thinking, well, but we will, right? And so... The fact that I turned it so wrong on that. I'm like, maybe I'm over here being like, oh, maybe he's going to uh, find an attunement. What if he doesn't? And he just never really develops the skills to do those types of things. Would that be such a bad thing? Like, you know, this is the thing that I get sort of stuck on is like. The desire to be a badass. That exists in everyone, you know. All of us have this sort of vague, like, I wish I was really impressive in a particular arena that was a uh, usually something kind of physical, you know, in an, a way that was intimidating, kept people from wanting to fuck with me, or I felt like I could defend myself or people that I love. Especially main characters and things, we are used to them eventually becoming somewhat formidable in. Not necessarily like straight up fights, but at least being good enough at certain things that they can really hold their own and you're not like concerned about them. And I'm wondering what if that's really not what's going to happen for Hugh or if it is going to be just defensive stuff like he is uh, out here later on in this section disabling a ward that was like extremely dangerous the thing that i feel might have uh worked in his favor there is that he didn't realize how dangerous so he was willing to take the chance to try opening it whereas the the wiser hue at the end of the section after he realizes what could have happened there may be a bit more hesitant on some things i don't know um but what i had noticed about in Cradle, the way that like the grouping of our party basically sort of worked out. That even though, yes, Lyndon's like offensive spells are badass. He's a fighter. That's fine. But he starts off as somebody who's like the gadgets guy. And the gadgets guy is usually a side character in a party. You've got your main who's the badass, do Luffy, for example, in uh, One Piece. And then you've got Usopp off to the side, who is like a delightful character, but he doesn't have the same raw power. So he has to compensate for that by like making stuff and inventing things and whatever. And what Cradle did was sort of take somebody who is that side Gadget's character and make them the main character, which is really fun. The same thing sort of goes a lot of the time with things like defensive spells you your main character is somebody who specializes in offensive spells and you have a side character who is there for the defensive stuff and they're good at it and they're in they they are definitely impressive in that arena but it's not as like inherently exciting to a lot of us to think about being the defender instead of the aggressor a lot of the time and so they're rarely the main and what if that's hugh's thing like he's genuinely going to be the defender the defender and the aggressive throwing fireballs type thing is just really not in the cards for him would that be such a bad thing Maybe I just need to like adjust my thinking on that, you know, because I really am sort of approaching this with like a very tropey sort of expectation. And I should maybe just like readjust. I'm just saying. Okay. So, um, then we have this thing where he is like going up against Talia and he has this sphere that he has made and he is trying to, uh, show off let's be honest that's really what's happening here and and the term showing off has like negative connotations but i genuinely don't mean it in a bad way like he deserves to show he's been working hard but he is asking her to hit the sphere with fireballs and it's moving in reaction to everything and she isn't able to hit it and then finally he says that i warded it so that whenever it detects dream mana, it sends out a directional mana pulse. Then I created a levitation spell set to react to those pulses. So that the sphere dodges dream fire accordingly. The spell then brings the sphere back to the midpoint. And she completely changes the m- way that she attacks. And she faints, essentially. She shoots in such a way that the, f- the sphere moves. And then shoots through the midpoint so that when it returns to that spot, it gets completely incinerated. Um, so yeah, this is like a really cool thing that he made, but I do kind of love the fact that she immediately saw how to get around it. Um, so at this point, he could replicate all of the basic cantrips students were expected to know at will, as well as doing a lot of basic modifications of them on the fly, which given the limited power of cantrips left him functionally months behind most of the other students. Unless he got a warlock contract with a decently powerful magical entity, he wouldn't be able to really start catching up with the other students. Everyone else at this point was already well on their way to learning to attune. And he is just really getting like very jangly about this which you would it's not a good feeling to know everyone else is ahead of you even if you find out that there's actually like a valid reason that you're behind it doesn't help you still feel like you're a loser you know um and he's still trying to find like a contracted partner but nobody is meeting with approval um, they're talking about the labyrinth and like what they're going to do. And he's just feeling like, I don't have anything to bring to the table here. I just don't really know what I'm going to have to offer. So he has dinner. He goes back to his room and he can sense finally that the, the wards are reacting and that somebody has followed him. And of course, his assumption here is that it's Rhodes. But instead, it turns out to be Talia and she's really mad. She is bleeding. She tried to get into his room and the wards reacted as if she were an enemy. And she's like, so this is how you greet a friend? And he said, I didn't know you were coming. No, because you never trusted us enough to tell us where you live. Why are you just standing there like a lump, not even going to apologize for almost killing me? Hugh tried to say something, but nothing came out of his mouth. Talia growled and shoved him. Hugh went toppling to the ground. I thought we were friends, Talia said. By the time he'd stood up, she was gone. Y'all, this was so upsetting, and I was so relieved at the way it went. Because he had nothing to apologize for. You know, like, she knows his specialty is wards. (laughs) And she even says that later, like, I should have anticipated that you were going to have something in place to deal with people like me. What are you doing? She's not thinking clearly. And she is invading his space and she's getting what she gets. This is the kind of thing where, and, and this is not to say, like, talking shit about people is just like a cool thing to do. For the most part, I think it's, it tends to be harmless. You blow off steam about somebody, you get over it and it's fine. But there is something to be said when you are like in a relationship where you have a partner who's kind of possessive or jealous or just a suspicious person in general. Sometimes they will go through your phone. And I have never done this because I just don't feel like I want to know you know it's, just, it's just, I just never mm, not for me because I always feel like what if I stumble across some text conversation where he's talking shit about me to somebody or somebody's talking shit about me to him and he's not really defending me or you know and really I don't like feel like people should be blamed for the way that they handle that sort of thing, unless it manifests as actual like behaviors. You don't want to know like certain things that people say and think about you. And you won't know if you don't put your nose where it doesn't belong. You know, some like when you overhe- overhear stuff, you rarely hear good things. So I kind of feel like the same way about this. It says she's deciding to sort of get in his business and gets hurt by it. And I'm just like, well, that's what you just, that's what you get for going in somebody's business. That's just how it works. That's part of why people have boundaries. And she is so aware that he has boundaries. I mean, he's literally hiding here for good reason too. Like I am not going to lie as much as I am glad that they know where he is and his place starts to become kind of a hangout. I am worried at the fact that there are more people now that Rhodes could follow to find out where he's at and how long can this last? So I just feel like she's just not considering all the aspects of the situation. And she does come to that conclusion later. Um, But at this point, he is like, once again, in this kind of spiral where he's thinking about how, he doesn't have any friends anymore that he screwed it up. Talia is never going to want to speak to him again and is generally kind of like doing the thing that I know a lot of us do where it's, everybody's mad at me. I'm not worth being friends with. I'm so high maintenance and so needy. And it's just a real, like it's an awful thing to read him going through. Um, And this, the the whole like series of days of him just not leaving the room, it just hit really hard. I'm not, I am a person who, when I have this sort of social anxiety, I retreat very much and completely understand his impulse here. It's like, it's so impossible to talk somebody through because if they are used to the worst possible scenario kind of reactions from other people, trying to convince them that maybe it's not going to be like that. It's like a fantasy land, you know, you can talk to them and know they're not mad at you the way you think they are. And you're completely correct. You've spoken to the other person. Even you may have like confirmation of that, but the The imagination that goes through all of the ways that they are probably still mad, the way that they're feeling about different things, and the way that they might, like, take stuff the wrong way if you try and talk to them about it. It is just wild how much your imagination can spiral out of control and make a huge problem where there wasn't even really one. um, And he's aware that probably this isn't true, but he can't break himself out of it. You know, um, if most of Hugh was more than ready to believe the worst, no matter how ridiculous. And I think that I almost said those exact words last episode was just like, he is very quick to jump to worst case scenario. In I think I was saying that in response to, the uh, encounter he has with Rhodes where his friends actually stick up for him. And he's thinking that instead they're going to be disgusted with what a coward he is. He does do worst case scenario and I've gotten better about this, but I still have that instinct to completely vanish off the face of the earth after a conflict. I just hate it. So he is sitting in his room. He doesn't go to class he doesn't go to lunch. He's just kind of sleeping and freaking himself out. And then there's a knock and it's Talia and she comes in. And. I, I was not sure what to expect here, and I was so pleased. Uh, he built exemptions for her into the wards, first of all, which I feel like right there is big evidence of the way he's feeling about things. I'm sorry, Hugh. It might have bugged me that you hid where you lived from us, but I should have talked to you instead of following you. I violated your privacy. I tried to open your door, even though I know how private you are and how good you are with wards. And then rather than own up to my own idiocy, I got mad at you instead. I calmed down and felt like an ass within the hour, but I was so embarrassed. I was completely convinced you were furious at me, so I spent all of yesterday training and avoiding everyone. This morning, I had to drag myself to training, and when you weren't there, I felt awful. The others asked if I knew where you were, since they hadn't heard from you. I was a coward, and I told them you hadn't been feeling well. They all bought it, except maybe Alustin, but he didn't say anything. I couldn't focus at all today. I slipped away after training was done to come talk to you, but I must've stood out there for an hour before I had the nerve to knock. And she waits. He doesn't respond. She says, please say something. She says, you probably want me to leave. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have come. And she gets up and it's not until she's like almost at the door that he manages to say, don't go. And that's all he says. And he's crying when he says it and again i just want to like take a moment to appreciate how often he bursts into tears because same and she just sits down next to him and puts her arms around him and like sits with him while he cries and doesn't say any more and doesn't demand anything of him and it was just a really nice moment you guys i just really like this and he admits he thought she didn't want to be friends anymore And I love when she says, don't be an idiot. Of course I. And then she has to stop me like, oh, boy, I really do just like lash out. I'm sorry. Of course, I still want to be friends. And then he says, something in me's broken, Talia. I can't stand up to Rhodes when he bullies me. I'm in constant terror that you three will stop wanting to be friends with me. We have one argument, and I go almost catatonic for two days. And she says, look, I really don't want to pry, but I get the feeling when you told us the story about living with your aunt and uncle, that there was some stuff you've been leaving out. Is that true? And he nods. And she says, nobody did anything to you know nothing like that no one ever nothing like that but it was a lot worse than I let on that day yeah and I've never really had any friends before I was always pretty shy and bad with people even before and she asks if he wants to talk about it and he says no and I'm personally, like, really curious if there's anything specific that this author had in mind. But I also would be very much okay if the author decides to never really go into detail on this at all. Um, But truly, like, this little heart-to-heart meant a lot. Both the fact that she is the one that comes back and apologizes to him and initiates that and is worried about him and also very embarrassed... And that she admits that she sensed there was something else in that story because it's her being really, like, careful. She knows how hard it is sometimes for Hugh to speak up on his own. So she's trying to open the door for him, but she's doing it in a way that's very gentle and not, like, again, pushing boundaries or trying to force him into a conversation he doesn't want to have. So, yeah. Um. So he shows her around the room and when he points out the, uh, the window, she's just like, oh my God, I'm so jealous. I really, I said in the, um, I think the first section, how I was like horrified that most of the classrooms don't have windows in them, but it turns out everything is built like inside a mountain. So I guess that would be a difficult thing to do. Um, And let's see, I'm trying to find the spot. How did you find this place? Uh, He showed her his new project. She grinned wickedly when she saw it. Now that's going to come in handy during our labyrinth test. Hugh started to to tell her more about it only to be interrupted by his stomach growling. So she's like, all right, I want to go get something to eat. Come with me. And she's about to leave. And she's like, you know what, bruh, no offense, but you stink. Go and change. And I love he gets a present on his birthday that's basically like magical deodorant and has to acknowledge that he does have an issue with that. And y'all, is this something that's like very rarely ever touched on in YA or am I just like reading the wrong YA? There is something about them just being like this teenage boy has B.O., I have not spent a lot of time around teenage boys since I was also a teenage. And so I don't know that I noticed because I was too horny, but I have to imagine that teenage boys just have a terrible reeking odor. Most of the time, I'm just going to go ahead and assume that. So I feel like that this should be touched on a little bit more frequently. Um, so, (laughs) he invites everybody else to his lair and it becomes a place where they hang out and they bring in armchairs and a coffee table and make it kind of like a spot. It's sort of like a common room, um, but just for their group of people. And then he gets woken up on his birthday, by all of his friends who all have presents for him. And apparently Alustin told them all that it was his birthday. And These presents, the first one is from Talia and it is a dagger uh, with like a a hilt that has flames sort of like engraved and, and sculpted onto it. She says that it's a Clan Castus dagger. It's not enchanted or anything, but it's well made and sturdy and we only give them out to friends of the clan. And she says, take care of it. You can show this knife to anyone in Clan Castus and they'll be honor bound to help you. Though you can expect a lot of questions about where you got it afterwards. And he is very, very honored by this. So then Sabay comes forward. And she has this bag that has two books inside. One is a big leather bound book. And then there is another that's like a small sort of... I, I keep sort of imagining it as like a messenger bag style. Um, the book was meant to be worn over the shoulder. There was a strap with a latch holding the book closed, which Hugh undid to reveal all blank pages. There were several quills and a couple sticks of drawing charcoal strapped inside one cover. A pocket sewn into the shoulder strap turned out to have a compact ink pot stored in it. My family sent me this spell book, but since I'm learning formless casting, it's not much use to me. It's a lot bigger than normal spell books. So I figured it would be handy for you to take notes in and plan out spells. And he is like, oh, this is rad. He's already like thinking about how he's going to use it. And then the second smaller book is bound with lizard skin. And it's full of this really tiny handwriting. And he begins to realize that it's all notes about making enormous, epic wards. And he's like, what is... And she says, it's my great-grandmother's notebook. She specialized in wards and could build storm wards powerful enough to protect a ship at sea or even shield an entire city from a hurricane. I can't take this, Hugh said. This sort of thing is priceless. My family already made copies of it. So they were happy to send it when I asked them to. They also told me to tell you if you ever get good enough to make wards like this, you've got a job with them. And he is like so touched by this. And yeah, that's a big deal. Like, I just love this. And Talia is like, God damn it. My gift was pretty good. And he still managed to totally outdo me. What the fuck? And then we get Godric's, which is a hollow glass marble covered in spell forms. And it's scent attunement. It eats scents. Rub it in your armpits and it'll eat the scent and make you smell better. Hugh blushed a little, but grinned. He definitely had a little bit of an issue with getting a bit ripe smelling, so this would be incredibly handy. Uh, And Talia hugs Godric and says, oh, that's my favorite present that he's got. And then he basically gives her the finger and it was very cute. Um, So they're like, we were going to go down to the port and like watch the ships. And he says, I've got an idea. And it turns out that he has found another entrance into the restricted section of the library that has been sort of overlooked. And I love the fact that Godric, who is this big strapping lad, and obviously very capable of taking care of himself, is the more anxious out of everybody. Like, he's the one that keeps being like, are you sure this is a good idea? Should we be doing this? Like, I, I don't know. I just like that. And yeah, we stand an anxious king. Um, So he is figuring out how to take this ward apart and they just sit and sort of wait for him and they're being chill about it. And, uh, he, let's see, are you supposed to be drawing off of the brass? Doesn't seem like a good idea to me. Wards don't have to be any shape so long as they're continuous. Drawing them in straight lines or circles is mostly just convention along with being the two most convenient shapes for wards. um, He adds a final connecting line and the chalk began to glow as the mana passed through it. It dimmed almost immediately, but Hugh could sense the mana was moving through it correctly. We're good to go. Be careful not to step on that chalk. It'll disrupt the bypass. Is it really safe? Godric asked. Probably, Hugh said. Probably? Godric said. Probably, said Hugh, and opened the door. (laughs) So, This section is just so completely not what he was expecting. They are able to like look for all the way to one end and they can't even like see the other side of it. Basically miles. We're talking miles Immense stone bookshelves, hundreds of feet high, floated in neat orderly rows in the huge space in the center of the room. Floating islands drifting near them had bookshelves, reading rooms, and in one case what looked to be a thriving forest on top. Hugh spotted a couple of cubes with bookshelves on all the sides, including the bottom. There were a few paths leading out into the center room, stepping stones scattered here and there, but Hugh couldn't see a way to get to most of the floating structures. Thousands upon thousands of origami golems were visible, tending to tasks all over the library. Books seemed to frequently decide to fly about on their own, some simply hovering through the air, others flapping their covers and pages like wings. All of this was lit by a profusion of glow crystals, floating wisps of light, and even a tiny sun orbiting the floating island with the trees on it. But the room was so huge, the overall impression was one of general gloom and dimness. And Sabay is like, this is impossible. This, There's no way that the mountain can hold Skyhold and this. And I've never seen this many books in my life. I didn't think there were this many books. So they go up to an index node, and this is super fun. Talia just types in Dreamfire, and the node comes up with, what about Dreamfire? What are some advanced Dreamfire manifestation techniques? What sort of techniques? And she replies with combat techniques. And I don't know why, but I just love the fact that this, like, node is basically, look, I need, I, I get that you need information you need to be specific do you see how many books there are if I just pull everything that mentions Dreamfire, what do you think you're going to do with that information come on help me help you um and it says the uh let's see It tore itself out of the book and drifted up into the air, revolved a few times, and then began folding itself. Within seconds, a hummingbird origami golem fluttered in the air in front of them. It shot away, coming to a halt 20 feet farther down the balcony. They all set out as one. Every time they approached, it would dart off again to wait for them farther down. After about half a mile of walking, the hummingbird darted over to the shelf where it hovered in front of a book with a fraying green cloth cover. Talia reached out to the book. The instant her fingers brushed it, the hummingbird darted off toward the nearest index node where it unfolded itself and inserted inserted itself into the book. So this is a really, I want to just take a moment here. First of all, I just love these origami golems so much. Just the whole idea of this is cool as hell. I also want to mention how Rhodes was like mocking the the whole concept of having a paper uh, attunement as being useless. And it's just such a good example of somebody looking down on a skill that like runs everything. You know, he's acting like this is something to be ashamed of, that you can't do anything with it. And I'm just like looking at the whole function of this library and thinking, good luck running this without these things like what how would that even work i think that this is such a dope attunement i would love this one i i don't know if there's anything to do with cooking if it would be like a flavor attunement um scent attunement would be good like in its way as well but if i could do something much more specifically to taste i would prefer that um but just overall, hearing what certain people look down on, it makes sense that it feels kind of ridiculous because there's a lot of that just in our world as well. Skills that are, like, perfectly necessary, part of our, like, whole societal structure and culture. But even though we need people who do those things, those folks are looked down on, even though they're kind of the backbone of how all of this works. Um, so... She's looking through the book and the letters are starting to glow. And Godric is like, I would close that if I were you. Hugh noticed many of the threads that composed the cover were actually glowing in patterns that looked suspiciously like spell forms. No one said anything for a moment. How many of these books do you think also do stuff like that? Sabay said. Quite a few, I would guess. Godric said. He shuffled nervously. I reckon I know what it's why it's forbidden to students. How many books are in here? Unknown. How do you keep track of all the books? I only track the books that have been indexed. How many books have been indexed? 12,400,762. 63. 64. Where do all the books come from? Information restricted. Reason for query? Just curious. It's not important. The book didn't respond to that, which I do kind of wish it had just out of curiosity. But, um, books on using scent attunements in battle, preferably books that aren't booby trapped and are safe to handle. How strong is said search preference? Exceptionally strong. <laughs> I don't know why that got me so bad, but the whole fact that he's like, I know it's like probably a little aggro for me to say I would like to not be hurt by the book, but I'm going to say preferences. I would like to not. Okay. I hear you. Listen, I hear you. You don't want the book to hurt you, but how firm are you on that, really? Like, <laughs> oh dear. Oh dear. <laughs> so then Sabay says do you have anything written by members of the Kayan Das family yes 14 private journals 3 training manuals a significant collection of personal correspondence and an unknown volume that can only be opened by blood descendants of the Kayan Das family take me to the unknown volume please so She heads out and they're basically like, all right, we're all going to split off and do our own things, which I have to be honest. I know that this is like what they need to do because they all have their very specific things to look into. But my instinct being in a strange place that's highly magical and just being like, let's all split up. I don't want that. I don't ever approve of that. I just want to be on record. I, this is like maybe the one time I'm going to be like, okay, cool, fine. Otherwise, that's a no for me. Um, So then Hugh, uh, directions for completing a warlock pact. The page tore itself out of the book and folded itself into a tiny balloon with a basket dangling below it. So this is when he starts to get like led into midair. And there's like all of these stone steps that are spaced in such a way that like he has to keep an eye on where he's stepping honestly i know that it's probably perfectly safe because of the way this place is set up but no absolutely not this the place is fucking magic can you say to the like node bring me the book i don't want to go to it because i just over my dead body man i'm not walking out into the fucking midair on a floating stone i'm not doing it i have an issue with heights kids and it's just not fucking happening i'm sorry so if necessary i will hire somebody to go get it for me but no so uh If I were to rip out pages before writing on them, could I write on them later and still get directions? Yes, though it would only be necessary if you were going into a section of the library with few index access nodes. So he gets the book, he pulls it off the shelf, The 74 Uses of Dragon Dung. This is another moment where I'm like, this feels like a real referencing Harry Potter moment. Uh, I think it was the 70 uses of dragon blood or 73 uses of dragon, whatever it is, that it was written by Dumbledore and he got like an award for it. I think, um, it might've been the seven uses, but either way, it just felt like a real pointed like, ha ha, I'm doing that. But with dung and I very much enjoyed this and I thought it was a solid joke. Um, so he opens the, the volume And in the front, it says, this volume is strictly forbidden from being read except by those ranked at least bishop or higher in the Church of the Eternal Heavenly Flame. In it are detailed some of the foulest, most pernicious pieces of magic ever devised. This volume only exists in order to offer ways to defeat these spells. In the off chance these heresies ever resurface and must be confronted again. Be warned, the spells grow progressively more deranged toward the end of the book. The original scribe was driven quite insane by recording them and ended up having to be committed to an asylum. And I am just real unclear on how much I should believe this. First of all, he had never heard of the the Church of the Eternal Heavenly Flame, and he's kind of like, I wonder if that means something. That's a, a church I've literally never heard of. But also, like, you know... He, the, the kind of stigma that there seems to be around warlocks already, is it something to do with that? Is it based in, in reality or bigotry? Um, just what's going on here? So he goes to the warlock pact and he's like, huh, this is weird. It's actually a lot like a ward. And he makes a copy of it. Uh, he made sure to hide the pact far toward the back of the book. So someone casually opening it would be less likely to see it. He probably wouldn't need the spell before this summer when Alustin was supposed to take him to find a contract partner, but he wanted it just in case. And I'm like, yeah, you are going to be using that without permission on the fly. I feel like there is just something in me that's like waiting for this. He thinks that he's going to go to see somebody with this like firm plan in mind and I'm just like, that's very optimistic, sweetie. But I think that this is going to be kind of a, an emergency situation. That's all I'm saying. Um, so he has to head back. And like I said, because of the way that these steps are angled and how they're in midair, he is so focused on where he is putting his feet that he isn't realizing Alestin is here. He has followed them. And he is not in his, like, usual good spirits and is just sort of going, so, what the fuck? How did you get in here? Uh, First, he says, whose idea was this? And when Hugh says it was his, Alustin is like, that's very interesting because literally everybody else has said it was their idea. And I love that a lot. Then... The Grand Library kills an average of 200 people a decade, the vast majority of which are fully trained mages. This part of the library is horrendously dangerous. It's the largest known collection of enchanted books in existence. Even many of the non-enchanted volumes are highly dangerous. Some contain information that can drive you mad. Others are actually constructed of poisonous plants for whatever insane reason. How did you get in here? So when Hugh says, I reworked one of the wards, he's like, fuck you. Yeah, bullshit you did. My ass. And they have to back him up and be like, no, he really did. And Alestin is like, "Uh, how long did that take? 30 minutes? Not even that, Sabe said. Alustin sighed. I'm torn between wanting to yell at you for messing with a ward that could have killed you. And, being impressed, you managed to bypass the ward at all. Kill me? Those spell forms should have just hurled me back, right? At normal ward powers, yes. We haven't particularly covered how wards are affected by the materials they're moving through to any great degree yet. Even as degraded as this ward is, with the power supplied by the library, you would have been mashed to a pulp. And... He's like, yeah, I'm going to get some people to fix this, first of all. Now I want to see what books you've chosen. And he is checking out Hughes. Excellent choice, if a bit advanced. Um, He is, I don't think, seeing the ward spell for the contract thing mixed in there. I don't think he's aware that... uh, Hugh found this. So he's in for a bit of a surprise, I think. Um, Sabay is able to open her book. And when he asks to see it, because it's like, you know, blood members of the family, she closes it and hands it to him. And it's like, if you're a blood member and he kind of gets irritated, but then he has to be like, look, Considering everything, I don't think this even really belongs to the library. I think this belongs to you. So you should take it. Um and then Godric, a reasonable choice, though I should note the book is enchanted as well. It magnifies any sense it encounters. So be cautious with it and don't bring it into any dining halls or restrooms. Oh boy, that doesn't sound great. <laughs> this is the kind of thing where I just like I'd have to like leave the book next to like a simmering pot of mulled cider or something like be really careful about that. Um, At least I can't fault your choice of book selections. So he tells them that this is basically kind of like a pocket world and it was supposed to be a lot smaller and there was an interaction that was unforeseen and it wound up being a lot bigger and also having some other like side effects that nobody was, nobody predicted and uh, he then says, I want you guys to memorize everyone who has died in the grand library. And we get fell to her death for by not paying attention to the footpath, found half starved and dehydrated as though they've been wandering for years, eaten by a flock of spell books, went missing without a trace. Two years later, the biography of him with covers of human bone and pages of human skin was found in the library. Word Don't love that <laughs> Yikes <laughs> uh, And uh, then he starts studying the labyrinth and obviously this is not gonna be a labyrinth that just stays static. They can't just be like oh how do you get through it and memorize that? It changes, it moves. Um and The first level was roughly circular, with multiple entrances on the outside. In the center was a large circular room with a stairwell leading down to the next level. It was the main exit to the lower levels, though other stairwells down were known to occur. In that center room would be waiting a team full of mages who were there for three purposes. To hand out tokens to students who made it to them, uh, proving they'd been to the center. To prevent students from going farther down and to prevent specially dangerous monsters from moving upward onto the first floor. The students merely had to reach the center room, retrieve a token apiece, and then make it back to any exit. Of course, it wasn't that simple. Apart from being a fiendishly difficult maze, even the first floor of the labyrinth had plenty of traps and monsters. Nothing a decently trained apprentice mage couldn't handle generally, but plenty of students failed every year. So Hugh and the others spent hours every day reading past accounts of the first floor, guides to the various creatures and traps and planning out their strategy. And at this point, the training is starting to be a lot more intense and they have to be much better than they have been. There's an expectation of perfection here. And this is when Hugh was really starting to be like, I can do my cantrips, but fuck, this is like all I've got. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm definitely like the weakest member of the team in terms of all of this. Um, His special project should help a little bit, but Hugh was still extremely worried about holding his friends back. Not just in that their team would have one less effective combatant, but that they'd have to spend time actively protecting him. When he confronted Alestin about it, Alestin merely told him that, quote, he just needed to trust in himself and in his friends. Hugh did trust his friends. He just didn't trust himself. And I'm like, Hugh, I know I get what you're saying. But also you're you're like, well, they're going to need to spend time actively protecting you. You're the wards guy, bruh. You're going to be protecting them. Like, I don't see why that wouldn't be part of your deal. You're acting like you don't bring anything to the table. I think that's actually going to be like more than you think it is. I just think it's funny that you're not considering that, but I guess it fits with his personality. So, so yeah, that is the end of the last chapter. So let's see what we've got. We've got chapters 14 through 16 next time. All right. Well, guys, I'm going to wrap up. Thank you again, Dan so much for commissioning this. Appreciate you a lot. Thank you everybody who is listening. Hope you're enjoying it until next time. To the loo, motherfuckers.